following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. So we're getting to the end of our series on 1 John. Uh, God willing, we'll be looking at chapter 5 this week and next, and then go on to something else in God's Word. The, uh, the verse that, that Krista highlighted is verse 13, which we'll be looking at, God willing, next time that John had written these things that you may know that you have eternal life, is likely the core reason why he wrote the letter. Uh, but as we've been going through it, it's not simply read the book, kind of get the message and you're good. I've been really challenged of something that I thought I was already aware of, and that is true believers believe the truth, the truth about the Jesus who was born to Mary in Nazareth, uh, sorry, in Bethlehem, and really was a human being and still is, and still is, who is also the divine Son of God, we need to believe in the correct Jesus, not somebody, somebody's version of him, but the Bible's version of him, God's version of who he really is. But it's not good enough just to believe the right things. We also have to be living the right way. And in many circles, Christian circles, how we live is out of a concern of this idea that people try to work their way to heaven sort of idea there's such a concern to not give the impression that we are accepted by God by the things that we do, that we could so downplay the things that we do. We've been talking about, we've been singing about the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus himself says that you'll know a tree by its fruits. John is very clear that if the evidence of true faith is not manifested, made real in the life of a believer, that person isn't just questioned, like maybe they're a believer, maybe not. As far as he's concerned, these are liars, these are fakes. And we need to take these words very, very seriously. Uh, often, as I've got into the passage of the week, we've started with a few verses prior because of the way that John has written his letter. It's it's, it's a very, very, um, t- like a tight tapestry woven where everything connects to everything else. Um, and so, it, so I've encouraged people to do, please read the whole short letter in one sitting. I encourage you to do so more than once in more than one translation to get the feel of what he's saying. Because what he's saying is what he's saying through the whole letter, not just a verse here and a verse there. As I mentioned, the Bible wasn't written in verses anyway. So I'll start with chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. John writes, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his, for, sorry, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, 
must also love his brother. I don't know if I mentioned this in the time we've been going through 1 John. Uh, there's a good chance I've said it at some point in, in my sharing with you. But you know the expression about somebody being so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You know, they have their heads in the heavenly clouds, so to speak. They're so spiritual. They talk spiritually. They love the songs. They love to attend services. They might read the Bible. Um, but there's a criticism that actually the, they don't, their rubber never meets the road. It's all concept and theory and words. And they never really um, live out the life that they're claiming to live. And John's very clear that that kind of person is not a true follower of Jesus. But I don't like the saying, so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good, because the truly heavenly-minded person is going to be effective for God in the, in, on earth. If somebody is truly heavenly-minded, if they have the thoughts of God, they will manifest in godly living. The heavenly-minded person is going to be earthly good. Not earthly perfect, but will be earthly good. I like to use the word effective more than good because God wants us to make a difference. He doesn't just want us to be nice and do nice things. He wants to use us to make a difference with the, the time that we have in this life, in this age. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Again, he's emphasized this. Jesus is the Christ. It's not just saying that Jesus is Jesus. Many people use Christ and Jesus as if they're synonyms. Christ is his title. It's from the Hebrew word Mashiach, anointed one, the Messiah. Whoever believes Jesus, not a conceptual Jesus, but the Jesus that John knew personally and physically who he touched. Um, that this Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And everyone who believes that has been born of God. But that kind of faith, that reliance, that entrusting of ourselves to him, if that's genuine, then we're also going to love whoever the Father loves. Something that conceptually I have tried to uh, pursue in life. And as you know, it can be difficult. That if I'm the father's child, I want to embrace. Remember when people used to embrace one another? I want to embrace everyone the father embraces. Doesn't matter what their style of worship is. It doesn't matter what church they go to, their denomination if they truly are a child of God. That doesn't mean any of us have it all right. That doesn't mean there aren't things that should be addressed in each other's lives. But it's not for me to dismiss anyone that is a true child of God. Verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John is clear that loving the children of God is not simply whatever we think love is. It's not the world's version of ushy-gushy, nicey-nicey love. 
It's God's version of love. And what's God's version of love? It's a life that is directed by the word of God. Loving other people is, the, is, is, a, a, is an action that is rooted in knowing what God wants from us and living accordingly. As I mentioned earlier, this, this, this outright fear of not wanting to emphasize how we live works, in other words, because that might get in the way of understanding what true faith is, has really, that it's been helpful, but it's also been confusing. And part of that confusion is a lot of Christians get nervous when we start talking about God's commandments. Maybe not you, but many Christians do. But John says his commandments are not burdensome. Oh, but didn't Jesus say in John 11, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And people have taught that passage as if there was those rabbinic teachers, those Pharisees, and they were, they were emphasizing God's commandments, and he had to do God's commandments, and they made it so hard for the people. Well, they, many of them, not all of them, many of them did make it hard for the people, not because they taught God's commandments, but because they added to them. They added to them, just like the church has done for 2,000 years. We have made getting right with God often more burdensome. Now, there are parts of the church today that are making it so unburdensome that it's not even, it's not biblical in any way, shape, or form. But we've got to be really careful not to add to what God is saying. We need to be emphasizing what God is saying. So if I want to know how to love my neighbor, love my brother, how do I, do I figure that out on my own? We've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and sometimes that's wrongly taught. If I could just know God properly, those fruit will just kind of appear in my life. I just kind of lay back and they're just going to happen. And again, emphasize because we don't want to add any kind of work to it. We don't want to make it burdensome. But that's just so off when it comes to New Testament teaching. We're supposed to be involved. We're supposed to mortify the flesh. We're supposed to run the race. We're supposed to behave like soldiers. Uh, and, and, it, and it takes effort. It, it, it's not about be, learning to be a, a bizarre, spiritual, passive person. But if we're following what God really wants us to do, that's not a heavy burden. That is a delight. Verse 4, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that, that has overcome the world, our faith. And it's, it's possible that when John starts talking about God's commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, there, that could be intimidating because we do find it difficult to obey God. How do we live? And I've been talking about um, true faith should result in effective living. Well, it's, it's not easy to be effective. Often we don't even we don't know what to do. We, we fail when we try. And we, and we fail because of the curse that still affects us all and sin still lives in us. That's why we do confession uh, each week. Because we do blow it. And that's why John says at the beginning of his letter, if we say we have no sin, 
We're liars and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we get up. We, we, you know, we fell. Forgive me, Lord. We get up and we go. And we continue to walk the walk and run the race that's before us. But it can be intimidating. But didn't Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. And that overcoming that he has accomplished has been offered to us. That ability has been offered to us. We don't have to be intimidated by the difficulties of life. We don't have to be intimidated by our failures. We don't have to be intimidated by the failures of others. Because through Jesus, we have victory. We have overcome the world. But what is it? What's the dynamic that's working in our lives that enables us to overcome the world? Our faith. Remember, and I'll say it over and over again, faith is not this kind of, just a, it's not a mind game. It's not just thinking right thoughts. Faith isn't just believing a, a, a list of good things. Faith is trust. Faith is trust. And if we trust in Jesus, we will overcome. The world is getting darker every day. At best, it's really, really confused. And Christians are confused today. Christians are in fear today. Some just want us to go along with whatever's happening. You know the one about the frog? You've heard the one about the frog? You've all heard about the thing about frogs? That they, if you put a frog in cold water and slowly heat up the water, the frog won't notice and, and then it boils, it'll boil to death. And so we've been told that we can be like frogs. Things in our society slowly change over time and we don't really notice. And then, it's too late. Well, have you ever looked it up? The frog thing's a myth. It's not true. If a frog finds himself boiling up in this water, he'll jump out of the water. So I, I, I've made a conclusion from that. We humans can be dumber than frogs. Because unlike the frog, we end up being in situations where it's too late. And there are still people who were alive when Europe came under darkness. When you read about it, it sounds like it happened quickly. But when you're there, it's just slowly happening. The storm clouds are beginning to form. Oh, it won't be that bad until it's too late. The good news with Jesus, it's never too late. If we find ourselves stuck, we can cry out to him. And there's no telling what he could do. As soon as we're willing to listen to him, willing to trust him, and willing to obey him, there's no telling what we could do. But are we paying attention? I do fear that too many people are asleep and will stay asleep. And they, they, we need to wake up. 
Verse 5, who is he that overcomes the world except the one who believes, who trusts that Jesus is the Son of God? Now that brings us to the section of, of verse 6 through verse 12. Now there's some controversy here, and I need to be careful to not spend too much time on it at this time. And that is, there's a half a verse in verse 7 um, that is questionable. Now people get a little antsy because here I am standing up at the pulpit saying that there is a part of a verse in the Bible that might be questionable. None of God's word is questionable. How we understand it might be, but none of God's word is questionable. But the fact is, the English Bible that we have itself is a... a um, um, a creation of, of, of human beings. God's, um, God's word is that which was given to Moses and the prophets and the apostles that were written down and at some point there was an original. And I've done talks and I can share with you, um, I, I have um, part of uh, my Old Testament course that I did a little while ago, I had a session on is the English Bible the word of God? And I believe the English Bible is the word of God in the sense that it accurately represents that which was originally written down in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But still, our translations in themselves have to remain open to scrutiny because they are the work of translators. And then the translation is based on copies that scribes and other people wrote and the fact of the matter is, the copies do not agree with one another 100%. They just don't. The fact that they, that they agree in the high 90% is absolutely astounding, and there's no comparison with any ancient literature. And I'm not going to take the time to establish why we can trust in the English Bible and in the copies of the originals that we have, but the evidence of the truth of Scripture is overwhelmingly astounding. That said, as godly people whose heart are, is for God and for His truth first, we need to be careful not to... Um, make claims about Scripture that may not be true. And so in the second half of verse um, 7, where it reads, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, or Spirit, and these three are one, that, that sentence does not appear in any manuscript until the 14th century. And all of a sudden, it pops up. And so from what we could tell, a scribe, it appears, a scribe added it. Now, one of the things about all these areas of what's called textual criticism, that's looking at the various manuscripts and trying to analyze them to see wh where the most authentic, wh what's most authentic, um, of all the controversial phrases, words, sentences, sections in the New Testament, 
none of them make a difference to any major uh, biblical doctrine. Just don't. And that's a good thing. And so from my study, I cannot claim that the second part of verse 7 is representative of the original. But as I said, it doesn't make a difference in terms of those things that we've over the centuries have come to believe about the Bible. It does make a difference in the flow of what John wrote. So if anybody is interested in that topic, I'd be happy to talk with you further on it. We can talk on the phone, we can have a Zoom call, uh, we can email, and if it is something that's uh, of interest to many people, we could do some sort of session on that one way or another. I'd be very happy to do that. Okay, so let's... The beginning of verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water, the water and the blood. Now, scholars have a hard time with this because John doesn't tell us exactly what he means by the water and the blood. What we can tell is that there's a concern of these people that had been part of John's community, that were no longer part of his community, uh, that were denying various things about Jesus and about what it means to follow Jesus. And it seems that they believe that he came by water, but not by, also by the blood. It's likely possible that the water that he came by was his baptism, and the blood was his crucifixion. And the reason why that's important, and I know this might sound strange to us, but in this thing called Gnosticism, it was common to believe that, remember when the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism? Something special happened in that moment. Well, they take that a little further. They believe that that's when he became the Christ. The divine Christ endowed the human Jesus at that time. It's not biblical. He was the Messiah from birth. He received the Holy Spirit in a special way at his baptism, preparing him for the ministry that was to follow. But he didn't become something else when the Holy Spirit came upon him. The Gnostics also believed that the divine Christ left him before he died on the cross. Because they couldn't handle the idea that God, um, that God himself died on the cross. That just couldn't, and a lot of people still have trouble with that. And so John is emphasizing that, that the Son of God, who became a man, truly died for our sins. And that's really tied to the fact that we are called to live the same kind of life. That we too are called to die for him. When you separate his death from himself, and kind of like, Oh, it's just his body. It's just a physical shell. Not that important. It's only the spiritual stuff that matters. And kind of like done with the body. You just kind of throw it out sort of thing. And a lot of Christians believe that. That the body is sort of good for nothing. Not the idea that we uh, profess every week. That uh, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. The body matters. God's going to restore. Or rather give us a new body. When you don't believe that it starts to split our understanding of, of how we're to live a godly life. 
Second part of verse 6, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. I'll continue. Verse 7, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these, the, these three agree. It, this is addressing the fact that the false teachers were making stuff up. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. What God has proclaimed through Jesus is a big deal, and we need to be paying attention. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Now, it might sound kind of strange that those who don't believe are making God out to be a liar. Because so many people who don't believe don't know anything about any of this. Like, so if, if you've said something and I never heard that you said it and I don't believe what you said, am I calling you a liar? Well, I am, actually. Um, well, first of all, many of the people that John's talking about had heard the truth. And for them to deny now what God is saying about himself is making God out to be a liar. But then what about other people? Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Well, let's say there's a news report that was on part of the news yesterday about something. And somebody, and, and, and I don't believe that. I don't know. Labor Day, they, they announced yesterday that they're canceling Labor Day. Can you tell I'm just making this up as I'm going along? Okay, so let's say they announced that yesterday. And I don't believe that. I believe Labor, and as far as I know, Labor Day is still happening, folks. But, um, and I don't, but I don't believe that Labor Day was canceled. Well, even though I don't know the person that said Labor Day will be canceled, I'm calling them a liar. I'm not being malicious about it. I'm not angry at them. But I'm denying this supposed truth. And so those who don't believe that God sent Jesus really and truly in the flesh to die for our sins... If we, whoever denies that is calling God a liar. And it's serious. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Eternal life in the New Testament and particularly in John. Is not simply speaking about the afterlife. It includes being with God forever. But it's more than that. It's a quality of life that's in God. Because when we don't know Jesus, we're dead. We may not look dead, we may not sound dead, but we're actually dead. And when we come to know Jesus, then we become alive. And if we truly know him, we are alive forever. And my brothers and sisters, 
We need to be living a quality of life that looks like eternal life. It may not be full of vim and vigor, but our outlook, our attitudes, and it's okay to be sad and it's okay to grieve, but at the same time, we need to be those that know that God is in control. He's sitting on his throne and our lives need to reflect the reality that we follow a Savior who has conquered death. Finally, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. All the way through John's letter, there's no wiggle room. You either have it or you don't. The good news is that if we have the Son, we have life. If you this morning do not have the Son, if you haven't yet truly put your trust in Jesus, who died for our sins, who conquered death by rising from the dead, if that is not a reality for you, it can be this morning. I encourage you. If you've been in church your whole life, you know that's not what makes you a child of God. It's by our faith that we are saved. Today can be your day of salvation. I'd be very happy to talk to you about that after. Don't let it wait another day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your power. We thank you that you are real. We know you're real. But you're really real. It's not just something we think in our heads. You've made yourself known. Lord, I, I, my heart goes out to people who have been surrounded by God talk their whole life. And maybe still have never connected with your reality. Lord, help us all. Those of us who do know you but are struggling and, and feel far from you. Or those who have never come to know you, who need to know you. Lord, help us to truly give our hearts and our whole selves to you that we might know your power and presence in our lives. Have mercy upon us that the fruit of your spirit might manifest itself in us in powerful, powerful ways in these days. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca. Thank you.